Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, the monthly Meet the Author podcast from the Team Approach, featuring books written for managers, supervisors, and HRD practitioners. I'm Susan Stamm, and I'm pleased to welcome Beverly Kay and Sharon Jordan-Evans to our show today, the authors of the international best-selling book, Love Em or Lose Em, and also Love It, Don't Leave It. To order these books today, please uh, visit their website, which is www.keepem.com. Dot com. That's K-E-E-P-E-M dot com, where you'll find an abundance of rich resources, articles, assessments, and more. Dr. Beverly Kay is one of the nation's leading authorities in career issues in the workplace. Dr. Kay's groundbreaking career development, talent retention, workplace satisfaction, and mentoring programs have been implemented by leading corporations. A dynamic and committed keynote speaker, her presentations engage participants, stimulate learning, and inspire action. She's the founder and CEO of Career Systems International, the leading the leader in development and delivery of innovative, action-based talent management solutions, and this is located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Before earning a doctorate at UCLA, Dr. Kay did graduate work in organizational development at the MIT Sloan School of Management and earned a master's degree from George Washington University. Dr. Kay has spent years researching corporate strategies for developing, engaging, and retaining knowledge workers. In addition to Love Em or Lose Em, she's edited Learning Journeys, a collection of essays from top management experts. In the early 80s, Dr. Kay first published her now classic book, Up Is Not the Only Way. Sharon Jordan Evans is a pioneer in the field of employee retention and engagement. She serves as a prominent speaker for numerous conferences, works with Fortune 500 companies such as American Express, Boeing, Disney, Lockheed, my favorite, the Cheesecake Factory, Monster, MIT, PBS, Sony, and Universal Studios. Sharon has a master's degree in organizational development and is a, prof- is a professional certified coach, coaching the leaders companies can least afford to lose. She also serves as a resource for a number of national media, including Business 2.0, Chief Executive, CIO, Harvard Management Update, Working Women, Investors Business Daily, Business Week, and the LA Times. Prior to launching her own consulting group, she served as a senior vice president and consulting partner for Drake B. Morin, uh, an international leader in transition management consulting. Sharon lives in Cambria, California with her husband, Mike, and her four grown children. Welcome to Bookends, Sharon and Beverly. Thank you. (laughs) Pleasure to be here. It's great to be with you both. It's been a long time in the planning. We, we have been watching with great interest uh, over the last several weeks uh, the, all of the exciting things that have been happening in our economy and the bailouts, and uh, it's been a very interesting time. I think you'd agree. And uh, we wondered uh, what, uh, I was particularly interested in your feelings about how these current economic conditions will impact retention. Uh, do you think that people uh, will be more inclined to uh, just stay in organizations even if they're unhappy um, at times like this? Or uh, do, you, do you see any impact on retention whatsoever? What are, what are your thoughts about this, Beverly? You know, it's such a good question. And um, it's important for any 
any organization leader out there, as well as any manager out there, that in times like this, we often think people should be just glad they have a job. And we don't put a lot of attention on retention. And I think it is, and I know Sharon and I both agree, it is still absolutely an essential issue. And it's still, there are still jobs available for skilled people. It's not like there are no choices out there. So I think that one of the, um, the results is that uh, when individuals think I have no choices, I better stay where I am. And where I am is not where I want to be or where I am isn't great. They do quit and stay, Mm -hmm. as we've said. They do hang on waiting for the economy to shift back. And they do lose their quote-unquote engagement. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yes, um, many more quit and stay, and I think managers and leaders have to be very aware of when this disengagement happens. And I'll just mention there was an article in the Wall Street Journal just last week that said that um, recruiters are saying, and it's very interesting, that more people are staying put and turning down offers because they're worried about whether or not the new organization will be stable enough to keep them. Well. Remembering last in, first out. So recruiters are finding they have, they're having a hard time attracting people to the openings that are still there. And that came from um, an Accenture study, and I think it was in the Wall Street Journal last Thursday. That's pretty interesting. It's it's certainly a time, as you point out, that we really do need to be focusing on engaging our team. Absolutely. It's retention and it's sister engagement, mm-hmm. maybe with engagement being in neon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sharon, in, in the book, you walk us through the 26 A to Z strategies, and I really enjoyed reading the book. It was just a, a fun book to read as well as a you know, packed full of value. And A, of course, stands for the word ask. Can you highlight the strategy for us and tell us why it's so important? I'd love to do that. And actually, before I dive into that, I want to piggyback on what Bev was saying. Sure, please do. 100% agree with everything she said. And I'm remembering, Bev, that in 2001 and 2002, when we had that recession, remember that? Right. Uh, Sometimes people forget. It was so short-lived. And here's what we found out. On the heels of that recession, when the economy lights came back on, People left organizations that didn't treat them well during the downturn. They remembered. They remembered. And so, you know, it's like alert, alert, alert to the managers out there that are saying, quit whining and be glad you have a job. Just know that if you say that, if you do have that complacent attitude about your talent during these tough times, just know that they are not only hunkering down, disengaging, but they are updating their resumes. Mm -hmm. And when the economy lights come back on, which eventually we hope and pray they will, we know those people are going to be the first ones out. And often they are your most talented people. So what you're saying is, is they may be disengaged in their work, but they're very engaged in actively seeking opportunities when the time is right. Job boards beckon them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. They have to. 24-7. Absolutely. They have to. 
Interesting. And now diving into my favorite strategy in our book. Uh, it's foundational to all others. It's the first chapter in the book. It's about asking. And uh, Bev and I have coined the term stay interviews uh, based on this work. And, and our recommendation here is that managers are conducting more stay interviews so they don't have to conduct as many exit interviews. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell you, explain to you what a stay interview looks like. And, and how foundational it is to all other strategies in this book. It goes like this. So if I'm your manager, you listeners out there, if I'm your manager, I'm going to pull you aside and I'm going to sit you down, maybe over coffee or lunch, and I'm going to say, you know, you matter so much to me and to this team and to this organization. I don't know if I tell you that often enough, but you are absolutely key to our success. I cannot imagine losing you. So I'd like to know what will keep you here. I, I'd even like to know what might entice you away. Now, this sounds so simple, and when we ask audiences, Bev and I speak in front of groups, and when we ask audiences how many of you have had a manager do almost that, there are very few hands that go up in the room. And then you ask the audience why. Why don't managers do that? And, of course, the listeners know the answer. <laughs> They're afraid. They're terrified. They're terrified because what if my treasured, talented employee asks me for something I can't deliver on? Mm -hmm. So in this chapter, we talk about what to do regarding that fear. It's a very simple kind of a three-step process that the manager can follow. And, and actually, it's crucial that managers are having these conversations. Now, it's even tougher to imagine doing state interviews in the midst of this downturn, right? Mm -hmm. Because managers are even more frightened the employee is going to ask for a, a raise, a slight raise, or a little more security or a promise of employment a year from now. They're going to ask for things the manager really can't deliver on. So what we say is, first, let them know you hear them and they're worth whatever it is they're asking. This is, this is assuming they're a really talented employee you don't want to lose, right? Uh, then let them know you care enough to look into it. Don't just dismiss the request. Say, you know, I'm going to find out. Here are some constraints. Here are some barriers. Be honest with them about what those are. But let them know you're going to go look into it and see if not this, then what? If not now, then when? And then here's, here's the best part of all. The next question is, meanwhile, what else? What else do you want? Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of the stay interview questions, we've put together a whole list of them, include things like, what do you want to learn this year? You know, like if you could make a wave a magic wand, what would be something you would change about our department or our team or our organization? Uh, so it's asking beyond just what will keep you. It's asking what are you really looking for? How can I partner with you to help you get more of what you want right where you are? The stay interview is absolutely crucial. Without it, managers are guessing, and they're often guessing incorrectly. That's a powerful strategy. And one of the things that I like to ask managers, if you don't ask, does that mean that it doesn't exist? Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, so if we just don't have this conversation, then, then maybe they, they won't be disengaged mm -hmm. or they won't be dissatisfied or they won't wish for something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good point. And, and the letter B, Beverly, in the book goes uh, talks about the, the word buck. And this uh, portion of the book, you share a, a great summary um, on some of the really alarming research that points out the significance of satisfaction. Can you talk a little bit about that and tell us how the buck can stop here? 
Well, just to build on what Sharon said, uh, the ask is critical. And I would say to, to managers, um, if you ask and you don't buy into the idea of buck, then maybe you shouldn't ask in the first place. Because buck means I have influence. Buck means I intend to do something about keeping you. Buck means I am not going to pass the buck to HR or to senior leadership. I'm going to do everything I can to hang on to my key talent. And um, Sharon and I, when we wrote the very first edition of Love Em or Lose Em, was in the late 90s. And um, our research and everybody else's is saying that it is it has a lot to do with the manager, whether or not I stay or go. And on top of that, we're finding that if the organization says, this is a strategic issue for us, we buy that as an organization we can do something about people being engaged and um, not just staying, but staying as a major contributor research is telling us, in fact, that those organizations with higher engagement scores do do better business. Mm -hmm. So the better, the business of caring for people pays. Pays in a higher profit margin, pays in increased sales, pays in increased market share, pays in um, higher customer satisfaction. And that if, if managers truly care about this and truly care that their people are, in fact, on board and engaged, people have, a, then employees feel they can impact quality much more, they feel they can affect service much more, and they feel they can even impact cost. And there's been study after study to prove that um, these things are so not just done by Sharon's organization and mine and in our book, but by many other very large research companies out there, mm -hmm. that the manager has a lot to do with retaining key people. And that is certainly our belief as well. Uh, and in chapter, in the next cha uh, in the chapter on enrich, uh, Sharon, I've highlighted a quote uh, that I found in that chapter that I thought was really powerful. You say, "What if I don't train them and they they actually stay? Um, how much of our retention challenges are due to what uh, we'd call boredom on the job? And what can we do about this?" Well, it's interesting. Uh, Bev and I conducted a lot of research uh, over the years, and we've asked actually over 17,000 people why they stayed on a job for a while. Mm -hmm. And we list in the book, in the, in the Ask chapter, uh, the top 20 responses. These are stay factors in descending order of frequency of response. And number one, the most frequent response was exciting work and challenge. Mm -hmm. And the second one was career growth, learning, and development. So the implication of the findings is that if your talent doesn't have enough of either of those or both of those, depending on the person, they can be so vulnerable to boredom. Mm -hmm. That job EKG goes flat mm -hmm. and they disengage or they leave you physically. And of course, we know that either one is not good for your business. No. 
So the key in this chapter about enrichment is to link arm in arm with every one of your talented individuals to find out what it is that would ring their chimes just a little bit more. Again, don't guess. Don't assume that everyone on your staff wants a promotion. Some do, and some say, oh, please, no, no, don't give me one of those. <laughs> In fact, what that person might want is a chance to play on a task force, you know, that's looking into something new. They might want to just take a class. You know, they, they might want more client contact. The key is they might want to do a little more of what they love and a little less of what they don't like on the job. We, we sometimes refer to that as job sculpting. So can you, in chatting with them and in, in conducting these ongoing stay interviews with your talented people, can you discover what it is they're passionate about and let them do a little more of that and maybe hand off somehow some of the things they really dislike? We know of a great example of a young woman who's an uh, executive assistant, and she started playing around with a newsletter, creating a newsletter for her company. And this was back when desktop publishing was, was just becoming available to most everybody. And she turned out this newsletter, asked, took it to her boss and said, what do you think? I'd like, to, I'd like to put this out, a one-pager. And he said, hey, that's great. Yeah, go ahead. She put it out, and there was a great response to it. And she came back to the boss and said, can I do another one? And he said, sure. And one thing led to another. She was loving desktop publishing as, as a part of her ongoing job responsibility. Over time, they job sculpted. She was able to do more and more of the desktop publishing kinds of things she was loving and a little bit less of the administrative work that was handed off to an intern. So we're encouraging managers to be looking for those opportunities to enrich, help enrich someone's job. And boy, is that important in a time when you can't hand them money. Absolutely. You know, if you can't give them the money, figure out how you can help them enrich their job. And what a way to honor someone's talent by sculpting the job exclusively for them. That's a great idea. Beverly, I'm sorry. especially important in this economy mm -hmm. when there doesn't look like there's a lot of movement in the organization. Yeah. Yep. That I really take a look and there are budget cuts and salary freezes. That I still realize how important it is to grow my people right where they are. It's like giving people a brand new opportunity, but they stay just, you know, in the same place, in the same organization, but they, they freshen up their job and responsibility. It's an excellent yeah. approach. In, 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 on our last month uh, bookends session, Beverly, we interviewed John DeGraff, and he is the, author, uh, the editor of a book entitled Take Back Your Time. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Uh, also published by BK Books. And I found uh, a really interesting connection in your chapter on family um, and his book. What, you know, why are these work-life issues so very important to employees? Um, do you see any change in their importance with regards to the economy that we're, we're now facing? And what can companies do to meet these needs better? Well, I think we've learned a lot from the uh, millennial generation and, and Generation Xers, too, about um, things that people want now. And while boomers and matures are saying it's, it's work, 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 I think the younger generations are saying, no, there has to be a balance. Mm -hmm. And I have another life outside of work, and that's important to me. 
And the more you, my organization, my manager, realize that, um, the more engaged I'll stay um, and the longer I'll stay. So family and my ability to attend to my life outside of work uh, means everything. And I think the very word family uh, means not just my children, Mm -hmm. but it means time for my friends, time for my pets, time for my um, uh, relatives, time for me to do my hobby and join my pals when they um, go biking. It's it's all of that. Um, And I think what I have seen in studies is that... uh, MBAs even are saying, um, more than the dollar, I want flexibility Mm -hmm. so that I can attend to other things um, in my life. And what we are suggesting, and we suggest it in Love'em as strategies, is that, in fact, managers need to be more flexible. And managers need to pull back a bit and say, now, how could I make that happen? And we know there are some policies that you cannot change. And we also know there are policies that are up for grabs if, in fact, a manager gets creative with his or her own direct reports. And um, we think it's about being supportive. It's about asking the question, what can I do to help you get more of that balance in your life? And then listening for the ideas to find one that, in fact, you have some ability to influence. I think it's also about creativity. What are the unique ways, in fact, that I can give my people more of the one commodity that we're only allotted a certain amount of, and that's time? Mm -hmm. And do I know them enough to know what kind of time they need for what? And, you know, sometimes... Sharon and I get the question, well, um, uh, no one else does it. Why can't I can't if no one else does? Mm-hmm. And we're trying to suggest to managers that they build a, a microclimate in their own areas and that they try to, in fact, um, provide their people with as much latitude as they can, of course, within the guidelines that they have to stick to and that they're willing to question some of the guidelines that don't make sense for talented people. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> yeah. It really all begins in the hiring process, the whole retention process, uh, doesn't it? Uh, Sharon, I, I was wondering if you would be willing, um, you know, there's a wonderful little story uh, in, in the chapter on hiring. It's on page 78, and it's about St. Peter. And uh, I was wondering if you'd be willing to read us this little story and share a few tips from the chapter on how we can begin to retain people right in the hiring process. Absolutely, and you're right. Retention does start in the hiring process. Why? Because getting the right person in the door and in the job in the first place increases the odds of keeping him or her. We know that. Yes. Your listeners know that. So it is about looking for the right fit in every respect, in skills and in the approach to the job, the philosophy, the values connect, all of those things. Very, very key. Uh, We also know a key part of retention is, in essence, selling the job to these potential candidates. And I know companies that are now training their managers 
in sales techniques so that they can conduct better interviews wow. and entice top talent into the door. Isn't that wild? That's great. So while I say selling the job is key, uh, we also like to make the point uh, in Love or Lose Them, you don't want to oversell. Mm-hmm. So with that, I'll read this quick story to you. A successful accountant, tragically killed by a speeding bus, arrives at the pearly gates and is welcomed by St. Peter. St. Peter explains that she'll need to spend one day in heaven and one day in hell before she decides where she'd like to spend eternity. With great trepidation, she enters hell. She's amazed to find a beautiful golf course, friends, colleagues who welcome her, terrific food, a great party, even a nice guy devil. At the end of her day, she regretfully leaves hell in order to experience her day in heaven. That experience is pretty good also, with the clouds, angels, harps, and the singing she expected. St. Peter pushes her to make the decision of a lifetime and beyond. In which place would she spend eternity, heaven or hell? You guessed it. She chooses hell. When she returns to hell, she finds a desolate wasteland and her friends dressed in rags, picking up garbage. There are no parties, only misery and despair. She says to the devil, I don't understand. Yesterday I was here, there was a golf course, a country club, we ate lobster, we danced, we had a great time. Now I see a wasteland and all my friends look miserable. The devil looks at her and smiles. Yesterday we were recruiting you. Today you're an employee. (laughs) We chuckle. Most people chuckle kind of knowingly because there's a shred or more of truth to it. Some people have experienced it themselves, the whining and the dining during recruitment and then kind of a cold, cruel reality once you sign on. So one of the things we talk about in this chapter that I think is so key, we call it preventing quick quits. (laughs) A lot of people know how vulnerable you, they are in the first six months of an employee's tenure. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, some research is showing 50 to 70% turnover in those first six months. That is so expensive. So in this chapter, we're talking about the ways you need to orient and onboard people, how you extend that handshake. And by the way, speaking of the buck stopping with the manager, we're saying most of this is with the manager. This is not human resources orienting, even though that is important too. This is about the manager connecting with those key people early on to link them to others in the organization, make sure that they're feeling part of things and welcomed. My daughter went to work for a large company a couple years ago, and her first day at work, she she actually had no lunch. They had her scheduled in meetings to meet people, but they forgot that they should have someone take her to lunch. Well, how simple is that? What an important and simple part of onboarding. So there are tons of effective ways of extending that handshake, getting people in the door, and assuming you've done all this hard work to recruit and interview and select, um, just think about how key it is then that you can hang on to a large percentage of these people at least for a while. And I think the other interesting thing is is how simple the things are that you're talking about. You know, all of those interviewing things are complex. They take time, money, and planning. But, you know, the onboarding piece that you're talking about is really so simple. It really is. I, I just heard about an organization that's doing a pretty creative thing. Some of your listeners might want to try this. Uh, when uh, when a person, new person comes on board, they put a big tray of bagels and cream cheese on her desk. They put out an email to all the friends, all the all the colleagues to say, hey, come on over and meet Jan, our new employee, and such and such a cubicle, and help yourself to a bagel and cream cheese. Oh, that's really neat. 
because, you know, people are attracted mm-hmm. to bagels and cream cheese. Sure. Any kind of food, right? They're attracted. <laughs> and so they come over and get their bagel and cream cheese and meet Jan. Uh-huh. And it's a great way then for her to begin to feel welcomed and connected even in that very first day. That's fabulous. Great. You know, the, the word that Sharon and I keep hearing, um, and we use it in the chapter at Hire, is re-recruit. Mm. And I think it's the re-recruiting has to start immediately. Mm -hmm. And I think not only do we have to re-recruit new hires, we have to re-recruit everybody in the organization. Yeah. Keep them excited. Absolutely. It's a powerful word. There's a a saying that um, if you're not re-recruiting your best people, if you're not recruiting your own best people, you're the only one who isn't. Oh, and, uh, yeah, maybe recruiting is going to take a little dip during our economic downturn. Of course it might. Mm-hmm. But your best people still are going to be looked at. They're still going to get headhunter calls from mm-hmm. time to time. They still have options. Yes, they do. Or bad. So maybe you're not recruiting, but you should be re-recruiting. Re-recruiting. Excellent exactly. idea. Yes. Beverly, I uh, loved the creative approaches to career options that you presented in the chapter on goals. I think so many of us have been really short-sighted in our approach to helping employees with this aspect of their careers. Would you agree? I agree. And um, I think it's a, it's a huge issue, and it's something that I've devoted probably most of my career to in the area of um, development. And as you mentioned, um, in the early 80s, I wrote a book called Up is Not the Only Way. Yeah. And uh, I should have made mugs and T-shirts <laughs> because the slogan is still so true. Mm-hmm. And truer now because what we're hearing from the younger generation is just keep me challenged. Mm-hmm. Just keep me on my cutting edge. Just give me the latest technology and I'll be happy. I don't have to go climb the organizational ladder. Um, as long as my current work is challenging. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a new lesson for a lot of managers to really get. And that... Uh, especially boomer managers. Especially. Mm-hmm. Especially. Who don't quite understand that. Um, so in Love'em, we talk about um, five other ways to move in the organization in addition to climbing the ladder. And, in fact, I think what we're seeing now is that there's much more of a lattice concept in organizations than a ladder. In other words, I move in a variety of directions, you know, almost like a spider web um, instead of just climbing that ladder. And Sharon already mentioned the importance of enrichment and growing in place, and I think it's something that, that everyone can do despite the economy um, despite um, anything that looks locked down, there are always ways to grow within your current position. I think that uh, lateral movement is, is another possibility, and I think that managers need to look with their people at what are the moves across, what might a lateral move be, what might the long-term career opportunities be, would they be better if someone moved laterally? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, that is important for getting people out of what might be a stuck position. 
Um, we also talk about the importance of exploring. And it is important that managers recognize that uh, their employees might get a lot out of being on a, a task force or being on a, uh, a, a team that um, includes people from other parts of the organization. And that that gives them a chance to explore and to look out and to see what possibilities are out there. I think even in times when we are doing so much more with less, the chance to let employees begin to see what else is out there in the organization. Where can my, how can I extend my network? Are things what I dream them being or is, is my image really off? And I think sometimes, and in organizations that are um, laying off and, and outsourcing more, I think it means I've got to also be aware of where I might realign. And by that I mean if I have to, if I have to go back to get across into an area that is more growing in my organization. Sharon and I were talking yesterday and we were talking about how in one organization, one area could be growing, one could be flattening, and one could be downsizing. And I think savvy um, employees have to watch all of that to see what's possible for them. And their managers have to be opportunity-minded in that way, too. Yeah. And I think, lastly, we have to face the fact that some of our talent is going to find that they do want to go elsewhere. And I think organizations that uh, lose great talent um, always make sure that their back door is open so the talent can come back. And I think that's an essential thing to remember, too, especially in this economy. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent input. Just a, a reminder to everyone listening uh, that you can engage our guests today, Beverly Kay and Sharon Jordan-Evans, as speakers for your special events. You can also order a copy of Love Em or Lose Em by visiting their website, which is www.keepem.com. That's K-E-E-P-E-M.com. In Chapter 9, you deal with the topic information, and there's a powerful illustration of how management and employee levels interpret a lack of information in a situation. Could you share this illustration that's found on page 88 with us and some of your tips uh, for information sharing, uh, Sharon? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we live in an information age. We know that. Uh, we expect to be in on almost everything almost immediately. And the younger generations are more that way than we boomers and beyond. Uh, and I think the, the recent presidential campaign and the candidates learned about the instantaneous nature of information, sometimes with grins and sometimes with <laughs> Wasn't that uh, the they truth? They <laughs> had it out of their mouth. You know, they maybe didn't even mean to say it that way. And did we all see it? Immediately. We yes. heard it, we saw it immediately. So your employees expect that kind of instantaneous information giving. And we know two things about information. One is that information is power. I mean, we even knew it as kids. It's why we told secrets. I'll tell you, but I won't tell you. That makes me powerful. We know information is power. Secondly, we know that in the absence of information, we as human beings tend to make it up. 
So that leads me to this illustration. The senior manager may be thinking it's too early to tell them. The employees are thinking the silence must mean it's pretty bad. <laughs> the senior manager is thinking this news is too frightening. We better wait. The employees are thinking they're moving the, the company to Panama. <laughs> the senior manager is thinking, I love this one, I'm afraid if we tell them productivity will drop. Yeah. And the employees are thinking, the company's going belly up, where else can I get a job? <laughs> so even if we, as senior leaders or mid-level managers, think, even if we believe that withholding this information is the best idea, that it is not. It is not. Now, we acknowledge there are times you're not at liberty to share. Mm -hmm. So you just got the scoop that there's a downsizing in two weeks. You're not at liberty to share that, probably, immediately. What can you do? What do? What should you be doing? You should share information early, honestly, and often. So any information you can give and check it out. Check it out with the human resources professionals that are maybe guiding the organization towards something new or senior leaders and say, well, what can I share? And then you go back to that team, your team, and you share it directly, honestly, as early as possible. And then the, the other piece of it is that it's important to be sharing it frequently. So you think, well, I told them two weeks ago that we were going through hard times and we would need some belt tightening. Isn't that enough? No, it's not enough. Why? Because we don't know what belt tightening means. We don't know what it looks like as employees. We want you to define it. We want you to tell us how this impacts us directly, me directly. That's what people are really looking for. So, you know, senior leaders get very frustrated about having to repeat and repeat and repeat information, but it's absolutely key that they do that. You know, and repeat information about anything that could impact your employees, and, of course, that means just about everything. Yeah, it, cert it certainly does, and it's a, it's a key area, I think, that impacts uh, our topic today. Um, you open the chapter on mentors by suggesting that people with mentors are twice as likely to stay. I was really intrigued by that uh, statistic. What can mentors do to help organizations retain top talent, Beverly? You know, just to build back to what Sharon said, I think one thing that mentors have is information. Mm. Information from a different perspective, information on their own careers, information on how to, um, how to negotiate in the organization. And I think the more that information, information that's not written in any policy manual, but can only be passed from one person who's been successful on is one thing that individuals want more of and one thing that helps them stay. Um, in Love Em or Lose Em, we talk about managers as mentors. Even though in the ideal situation, your manager may be your coach and you may have a mentor in another um, area of the organization, managers also mentor in that they guide. And we use an acronym in uh, Love Em or Lose Em that stands for mentor, and I think it sums up what good mentors do. And it uh, says they model for the M. Um, they model what you want your employees to do, and they um, point them to other good role models, and they let, they let individuals know when, um, when they've been wrong 
and they're not afraid to say, the way I led that meeting or the way I dealt with that was a mistake, here's why. Mm-hmm. I think they encourage, um, they encourage people during good times and bad, and I think in this economy it's an especially important thing. And uh, the N in mentor is for nurture, and that means do I know the unique skills? Do I know the unique strengths of these people? Do I know what their capabilities are? How do I nurture their ideas and their relationships, especially given these times when certainly the news out there uh, doesn't seem like it's going to change in the short term? And the, uh, the last part of it, the TOR, is for Teach Organizational Reality. And there we're saying that we think the job of the mentor is to tell it like it is to the degree they can and to, um, to let individuals know, um, you know, ways in which people derail themselves and ways in which um, you have to adjust to the culture. All of that information, I think, helps to retain top people. And I think it contributes to the organization. I think the, the organization, if it invests in mentoring, mm-hmm. you know, inspire, inspires more loyalty, attracts more high performers, creates more talent in the pipeline, and um, upgrades employee skills. So there's something in it for the organization. There's something in it for the manager, and there, of course, is a great ROI for the individual. In Lovem, we had one uh, sad interview, and we call it in a last story, and it went like this. Um, we asked the manager, did you ever have a mentor? The manager said, well, you bet. Um, I had a great manager. He cared about me. He'd stop in all the time. He'd ask me great questions. He'd tell me the truth. Um, he kept my juices flowing, and we said, do you do that now for anyone? And the sad answer was, no, I'd like to, but we don't have time these days. Mm-hmm. I think making time for this very important conversation and relationship is critical, yeah. especially now, especially in this economy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there's, there's one topical area or group, if you will, in your book that I think could especially benefit from mentors, and that's the chapter on jerks. <laughs> Sharon, uh, do you have any stories that you could share to illustrate the impact of this kind of behavior and how a person can best check themselves to make sure they're not becoming a jerk in the workplace? Absolutely. Uh, Bev and I get lots of jerk stories, don't we, Bev? People are happy. Too much. To, yeah, <laughs> too much. They, they're happy to send us uh, the story of the jerk they worked with or the jerk boss that they had. And, you know, I should clarify that we're trying not to label people necessarily as jerks. Mm-hmm. Besides, it's always the other guy, not me. Of course. Uh, but instead, we're talking about jerk-like behavior. Right. And we've identified 50 of them, believe it or not. Even a little uh, jerk quiz, a behavior checklist you can take a look at in the book. And I recommend that people do that. And uh, not only to identify jerk-like behaviors of their boss or someone they work with, but some that they might accidentally, occasionally engage in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never intentional. But, yeah, we've heard stories, uh, for example, big things like, my boss told me I was passed over for a promotion because I hadn't gotten over my grief soon enough following my father's death. I mean, that's a, a definitely a jerk-like behavior. 
to something that seems much less serious but matters, and it goes like this. My boss told me to come in and talk to him anytime. I went in for a topic that was important to me, my career. He kept reading, even answering his email while I talked. <laughs> yes, how important I felt is what this person said. So you asked about the impact of jerk-like behaviors. I mean, people feel unimportant. They feel undervalued. They feel dismissed. Um, you know, they're, they're not respected in very many cases. And the result is that they disengage or they depart because really the bottom line today is that people won't stay and work for a jerk. Now, they might stay, but they won't bring their discretionary effort to work. Yeah. So it's absolutely key that people take a look at their own jerk-like behaviors, even those that are, that are so occasional, just you know, not often at all, and say, what's the impact? On, on others, and I recommend you know people show the jerk like the jerk quiz to a friend at work and say, hey, do I ever accidentally, occasionally exhibit any of these behaviors? And uh, and then I, I kind of jokingly say, of course, if you don't have a friend at work, <laughs> your clue that. Uh, and and you can change, by the way. Sometimes people think, no, I'm just stuck with these jerk like behaviors. It's who I am. And the answer is no. I do, I do a lot of executive coaching, and the good news is people absolutely can change. They gotta wanna, of course. They might need a little assistance along the way, uh, but people absolutely can change these jerk-like behaviors. Yeah. And you know, I, I just would will add uh, that Sharon and I um, have developed some learning solutions, and so we have a team that um, that delivers these solutions all over the country and around the world. And this J chapter, the word jerk, always gets knowing smiles. <laughs> and the way we introduce it is we say, first, have you been at the mercy of someone like this? Mm-hmm. And what was the implication of that particular behavior on your willingness to come forth with ideas, on your ability to um, feel dedicated and committed to this kind of work. And when you ask managers or any room anywhere in the world, have you been at the mercy of this? They immediately say yes. Hmm. And they immediately realize that the result of that behavior is that I disengage, I pull back, or I leave. Yeah. Or I quit and stay, as we talked about in the very beginning. Absolutely. Hmm. Well, my favorite chapter in the entire book was chapter number 17, which dealt with the topic of questions. And I think that, you know, this is a huge source of talent loss, both when employees quit or stay. In fact, it it may be closely related to the chapter on asking, because that, of course, is a questioning kind of chapter as well. And I loved your approach to the topic. Um, Would you highlight this opportunity for us, Beverly? Well, um, Sharon and I also agree that this was in a very important and a very uh, ticklish topic mm. because the, um, the subtitle in question is Reconsider the Rules. And the, the question we sometimes ask is, which will you keep, the rules or the people? <laughs> and we are amazed, again, in the keynotes that we do and in the more intense work we do when we deliver the learning solution is how many managers are um, afraid or resist reconsidering a rule for the sake of talent and how much more freedom they have 
than they think they have. Mm -hmm. And so in the uh, question chapter, we, uh, we talk a lot about um, what we call um, uh, the box that we put ourselves in. And this box has four walls, and I think that's what you were referring to. Um, one wall is concrete, and there are certain areas that can't be changed. But the other wall in the, in the box is glass, and that can be um, broken and changed if, in fact, we ask. Mm-hmm. Another wall is rubber, and rubber can be pushed on and molded and, and um, also stretched to, um, to make an exception to the rule or to massage a rule. But the toughest one is the vapor one, and that's our beliefs, our assumptions, and our perceptions about the rules. And when we really inquire in organizations, the, uh, the belief that there's a written rule, and I can't do that. I can't make that exception. Keeps managers from being at their creative best. Mm-hmm. And keeps managers from saying, I'll go to bat for you. And the cop-out is, if I say yes to you, I have to say yes to everyone. Mm-hmm. And we're finding in this day and age, in the age of great diversity, mm-hmm. um, that isn't necessarily so because everyone has their own unique requests. And retention and engagement is a very, very um, individual kind of, um, of questioning that we have to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, ties very much to what each individual wants and needs. That's so true. Uh, you know, what's, what's going to engage me and retain me is certainly perhaps very unique you know, unique to me and certainly not what what someone else is going to be looking for. Uh, In your chapter on truth, you share a very interesting discovery made through the Ohio, uh, through Ohio State, uh, a research study done there, that in absence, in, in the absence of feedback, pay becomes more important. I was really intrigued by that. Can you share some of your thoughts about this area of truth sharing and why this is so important to us, Sharon? Yeah, in fact, Bev and I uh, stumbled on this research news in the last, within the last year and included it in this fourth edition of Love em. And I'm going to quote just this one or two sentences from it. It says, uh, and it's Ohio State University Fisher College of Business that had done the research. Mm-hmm. When employees aren't given a lot of feedback about how they are doing, they have to use pay as their only measure of worth. This magnifies the importance of salary as a way to feel appreciated and for employees to gauge their importance. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes a lot of sense, and it fits with what we know about pay, and pay being a hygiene factor and so on. We also know that pay isn't a very strong stay factor, because if I'm bored, silly, uh, I work for a jerk, I see no career path, you know, money isn't going to keep me here, uh, definitely not for at least most people, it's not going to keep them here. And company surveys keep saying that people want feedback. We hear this and see this all the time, the right. latest corporate survey. I want more feedback, I want more development, uh, I want more listening to me. You know, those are the kinds of things that pop up. People yearn for straight talk. Uh, they want to hear the truth about their performance. They want to hear the truth about the organization, where it's going, what it's doing, what its challenges are. The younger generation, I'm going to cite again, the younger generation is even more insistent on getting frequent, accurate, honest 
feedback. <laughs> the the once a year performance appraisal meeting isn't going to pack it for them. And so many of us in the in the boomer group, we were used to an annual performance review. And if we got feedback, especially corrective feedback, meanwhile, uh, that was a surprise. Mm -hmm. We waited for the annual uh, performance appraisal. But these young people are asking not just for the praise, but they're wanting developmental and corrective feedback, too, because they are about growing, learning, developing, improving. So some of the, the truth tips that we give uh, are, first of all, to be able to try to see it as a gift. So if you're thinking about giving someone some corrective or developmental feedback, try to view it as a gift. And, and I often give this example of when I was 24 years old and I was a dental hygienist and the dentist I worked for pulled me aside after we'd gone out to lunch, the whole staff, and he said, you know, Sharon, I, I want to give you some feedback. And, of course, the hair on the back of your neck stand up, <laughs> right? Because, yes. you know, this may not be good news. And he said, I just... I just want you to know we love you and everything, but, you know, you tend to dominate conversations. And, of course, I did what any mature 24-year-old woman would do. I cried oh. and, and felt horrible and mm. thought I better quit. They hate me. And as we explored a little further, he, he described what I tended to do in groups. Uh. And, you know, I was unaware. Yeah. And the next time we went out to lunch, I decided to observe uh. myself. And so I watched, and indeed, I dominated anyway. So I watched myself dominating and thought, how is this even possible? But I realized this was such ingrained behavior for me. Now, that guy, when I was 24, gave me a gift that was so important. I couldn't do the work I do today yeah. if I couldn't shut up. Yeah. And you notice I didn't dominate today, right? <laughs> right? right? No, you took great turns. <laughs> So it was a gift for me, and it was a gift for him, too, yes. because I did shut up yeah. at least some of the time. So the manager needs to view this as a gift for the receiver and sometimes actually for the manager as well. And then there are numerous feedback rules that we recommend in the book that, that you can follow to make sure that your feedback is given in, the, in just the most positive way, uh, a way where the, the listener really can receive it, not be embarrassed by it, can use it. And then finally, we talk about truth, too, from the other angle, and that's ask for truth about you, if you dare. Get input from your employees, from your peers. You know, we hear about 360 feedback. There are many ways of getting good feedback about you so that you can work on yourself and grow and develop. So truth is about giving and about getting. Absolutely. You know, I would think in this economy, um, it is truth about what I know about our organization mm -hmm. and where it's heading Yeah. to the degree that a manager is comfortable because everyone is reading in the newspaper every day about organizations and they want to be in the know mm -hmm. about where their own organization is heading. Yeah, and why wouldn't organizations want to capitalize on information that can help them be more competitive and successful in this environment? I mean, it just doesn't even make sense that, that we would want that. I think because there's a fear, if I tell the truth, I might lose people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to lose them on my terms when I'm ready. Yeah. And not ahead of that. Yes. And I think that employees nowadays are so savvy and mm -hmm. so informed that to not tell the truth yeah. is to do them an injustice. Exactly. And I think being really straight and really straight with your people 
uh, and, and telling the truth and asking for them to hang in. I mean, sometimes people are afraid to do that. I was working with a large organization that announced a huge layoff, and and the top guy said, "What do I say to my people? I can't. I don't want them to go anywhere." And I said, "Well, tell them that. Don't go anywhere." So he decided he would. He'd have conversations with them to say, "Yeah, we're going through tough times. Everything's uncertain." We don't know. I can't even promise you anything because I don't know. Please hang in with me. Mm-hmm. You know, please hang here with me. And it's and it's even making those kinds of requests yeah. that make sense during tough times when otherwise people might be nervous. They might be updating that resume. They might be looking for greener grass. The concept of being needed is such a basic, uh, oh, yes. a basic thing to our, our needs as human beings. And uh, you know, we're so willing. Especially now. Yes, we're so willing to be part of the team and pitch in, and, and we only knew. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Loyalty is not dead. Loyalty no. Alive and well. Absolutely. It has, it has a different form and a different shape than it did maybe 30 years ago. I think we have a need to be loyal. We do. We do. You know, Susan, as I listen to Sharon and I giving you these answers, and I think about your listening audience, I think um, most of what we're saying is what people know. Mm-hmm. In their gut. In their gut. And, and it is like common sense, uncommonly practiced. Yes. Isn't and that true? The pressure is on, mm-hmm. and my own position mm-hmm. is shaky. It is very hard for me out of that place yeah. to help coach, guide, nurture somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I think that is exactly what we are saying managers need to do. And in our heart of hearts, we all know that that's what's needed. And, and you? also, Bev, uh, I, I agree with you, and, I, and I'd say that the good news is we could have written this book for a recession mm-hmm. because everything in it is low cost or no cost. Right. Right. So yep. these are things that managers can be giving. Managers, mm-hmm. leaders at all levels can be giving, 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 giving. Actually, it matters more than if they were giving money. Uh, but in the absence of the ability to give money or a promotion or whatever, some managers just freak. And they're so concerned they can't give anything. And we're saying, oh, yeah, A through Z, there are at least 26 things you can be doing to, you know, further build on the loyalty that you already have created with your good people. And and in our learning solutions, we try to make sure every manager goes out with an engagement plan Mm -hmm. for how I'm going to engage the key people on my team. It's not just the key people, all the people on my team. Well, this has just been just such a wonderful time uh, with two kindred spirits. I really appreciated uh, listening to you both, and, and um, the ideas in your book have have uh, been wonderful, and I've really enjoyed and certainly would recommend uh, to everyone on the call um, uh, to uh, to get a copy of this book if you if you have not done so already. Uh, Sharon and Beverly, I want to congratulate you on the book and your contribution to the HRD field that you make every day through the work that you both do. And uh, it's been really great to have this time with you both and this opportunity to really do a walk through the book as we've done today. Um, once again, just a reminder to folks listening that you can order a copy of the book directly from Sharon and Beverly by visiting their website, which is keepem.com. That's K-E-E-P-E-M. 
And uh, I just wanted to briefly mention that our December edition of Bookends will be featuring a book that's called Why Employees Fail to Meet Performance Expectations and How to Fix the Problem. That book is authored by Vernon Williams, uh, and that's on December the 11th at 11 o'clock Eastern Time. Um, also in 2009, we'll be starting off the year with Peter Block, and we'll, uh, in January and in February, we'll be interviewing Kim Cameron, um, and we'll uh, keep you in the loop of all of our bookend sessions if you uh, visit our website, teamapproach.com, and uh, click into the bookends button and uh, sign up so that you receive our notifications and, and know what's happening. Uh, when you go into that area, you can also listen to archived bookend sessions that are posted on our site. So uh, once again, I want to thank our wonderful guest, Beverly Kay and Sharon Jordan-Evans for being with us today, taking the time to share their expertise and their work with us. Thanks so much. Thank You're you, welcome. Susan. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.